come from the background of uh, black preachers, black, the black church, and one of the things I love about the African-American black church is that they do something that's kind of a call and response. So if the pastor's saying something good or something that's interesting, you say amen. And if you say something that you may want him to keep on going, you say, preach, preacher. I don't expect that from that crowd, but we'll hopefully, in the next three to five years, we can, we can add on to, as we go. Hopefully, we'll get there eventually. One of my favorite sayings that's, that's within the black church, especially when a pastor is preaching on a text, and it, it, far, it speaks to not just his situation, but everybody else's situation in the room, he asks this question. It's a great question. He says, can I get a witness? And when he asks that question, what he's saying is this, can I get someone that can understand or can testify that what I'm talking about also applies to you? And here at this hinged passage in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that from our brother Paul. Paul is getting and calling out witnesses to verify the beauty and the majesty of the, res the resurrection of Christ. Now, for context purposes, I won't be long, but for context purposes, you have to understand the context that Paul is preaching to. In verses 1, chapters 1 through 4, he takes the time to really talk to um, a divided church. And we know that no churches are really divided, right? No, no churches are really divided. But he's talking to a divided church. Some people say, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of, I'm of this preacher, I'm of this service. He's talking to a people who were in Christ, but their address, their home address, was still at the church at Corinth. We then go on, specifically in verses 8 through 9, when he deals with the subject of idolatry. And he talks about warnings of um, not excluding yourself from being able, being able to, um, to fall or to, to have yourself um, be above sin. In 11, he talks about head coverings. We're not going to talk about that today because that would be a whole sermon by itself. He talks about the, the Lord's table. And then in chapters 12 through 14, he talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about what those are. And in chapter 13, which is probably the most misquoted scripture, part of scripture of, of all the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, that talks about love. Always talked about in weddings, as, as well as should, but it's talking about not just love between a husband and wife, but even love between church members. In verse chapter 14, he talks about the conduct in the church. And then we get to chapter 15. And Paul gets, gets us to this point of chapter 15, and he's trying to get us to understand and to be reminded of this point. He's telling the church at Corinth, don't get bored with the gospel. He's warning them. He's helping them. Don't get bored with the gospel. And he does this by bringing up five different witnesses to help them understand the significance of the, of the gospel. The first witness he brings up is the church in verses 1 through 4. The second verse uh, witness he brings up is the scriptures, the, 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 the Torah and um, the scriptures that were given to them at the time. Then he goes on to eyewitnesses, actually people who felt, touched, walked with Jesus. And then he goes to a very important part. He talks about his own testimony, and then finally talks about the common message. So look with me again in verses 1 through 4 as he brings up this eyewitness, this, this eyewitness, this as a good um, prosecutor, he's bringing forth the first witness, and that is the church. He says this in verse 1, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which now you take your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
here we're reminded of the gospel and, and what he's done, what Christ has done through the gospel. So what is the gospel? The gospel is simply this. The gospel is a revelation from God to man. He says this, Paul says, the gospel I preach to you as pastors, as, as leaders, as ministers, as followers of Jesus, we are to preach what God has said. It's a good reminder in this verse that we are to preach what God has said and to add nothing more. He says, the gospel I preach to you, um, he says, the gospel I preach to you, which you received on which you now take your stand. I love this because here, this word here, the gospel that I preach to you, that word preach can actually be translated differently. It can actually be it's the same word that we use for the gospel itself. It's the same Greek word. So in, in, uh, in really reality, what, what Paul is saying here is this. He says, the gospel that I preach to you, or you can say, the gospel I gospel to you. It's the gospel that I gospeled to you. And it's a good reminder that the gospel is its own subject and verb. It is not a new message. It's not a message that he has to conjure up. It's a message that they have heard, they have believed, and they have been saved by. The gospel not only establishes us, the gospel also moves us. The beauty of the Resurrection Sunday and the beauty of Easter is not just going back and reminding, reminding ourselves of what Jesus did. That's part of it. But it's also a celebration of what God continues to do in our life. How he continues to say, sanctifies us and continue to keep us. Amen. He says, the effects of the gospel, the first effect we see is that the gospel establishes and keeps us. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. You see, the gospel always produces a transformed life, sustained by the power of the gospel itself and the power of God. The gospel is not something we embrace at the beginning of the Christian life. It's not just something we receive but it's also something in which you take your stand. It is a source of strength throughout the Christian's life. It's not just something one time occurs. We, need, we constantly, constantly have to go back to the gospel. It's a good reminder that the gospel is not just a message for evangelism, but it's also a message for discipleship. It's for believers and unbelievers alike. And that's why, even as pastor of, of this church, that the gospel will be the number one priority preached in this pulpit. Because the gospel is for those who believe and also for those who don't believe. Those who are on the fence and those who are far from the fence. But it's all inclusive. The gospel is not only received by faith, but it's also what we stand on. It's also what is our firm foundation. It reminds me of that beautiful passage. You know this passage um, in Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm chapter 1, it talks about um, the beauty of um, God's word. It talks about the beauty of um, the two ways of following God or not. But it talks about the man who follows God. He says in verse 2, instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates it on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he or she does prospers. Listen to what the psalmist says. He says, that person who's standing on the gospel, that person who's standing on the truth of God's word is like a tree planted by flowing streams. Notice that the tree is not the most important thing in this text. The most important thing in this text is the location of the tree. 
The tree is planted by flowing streams, constant streams, consistent streams of flowing water that come from a, from a, from a, a beautiful and all-gracious God himself. He's like a tree planted beside flowing, flowing waters, and it bears its fruit in its season. I love that because it reminds us that, listen, there are some seasons in this life that you may not bear fruit. There's some seasons in life where it may be hard for you to see fruit from your life. There may be some dark seasons. There may be some good seasons. But throughout every season, make sure you're planted and you're firmly established on the gospel because that's where God has planted us in order to have life and vitality in his son and in order for us to move as a people to be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. Amen? Be planted. Be tree planted by flows of streaming water. So that's a good question for us to talk, take a pause and just ask ourselves. So where are you planted today? Where are you planted? Where, where's your foundation? Where, where if, you have, if you were a tree, are, are your roots reaching to streams of, 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 of water? If not, if not, that's okay because the waters always flow. They always are flowing. God's grace is always open in this era, in this, in this time. However, what I would call you to do and what I would encourage you to do is to repent and ask God to, hey, Lord, please plant me by these streams of water. Plant me into a community that can give me life and that can preach the gospel to me and, and grow me into and help me grow into the likeness of Jesus. We not only see that the gospel establishes and keeps us in verse 1, we also see that the gospel saves us. Amen? Look at verse 2. He says, and, and by which you are being saved. I love this because Paul here is talking about um, the, the all-encompassing, the full aspect of the salvation of God. This, this word here is not, my translation says in verse 2, and by which you are being saved. Yours may not say being saved. It says my, by which you are saved. But the Greek word that Paul uses here, uh, it emphasizes the, uh, the present aspect of salvation by using the present tense. He's reminding us that salvation is an ongoing process by which believers are conformed more and more into the image of Christ by putting to death the deeds of the flesh and making alive the deeds of the Spirit. It is what Paul, what Jesus calls us to. It's the daily denial of self, taking up the cross and following the Lord. There's a, all aspect, there's a full aspect of here that Paul is talking about. If you were to, when it talks about he is saving me or you are being saved, he's saying he has saved me, he is saving me, and he will save me. It's a full aspect of the gospel. Uh, theologians put it this way, justification. You are justified in Christ. When you believe in Christ, you are made right with him. The wrath that you rightly deserve is, is absolved and taken away through the person of Jesus and through his, his death, burial, and resurrection. But it doesn't end there, just a justification. Then from that point on, you are sanctified in Christ. You are growing in him. You are producing fruit in your life. You are being changed. Your desires change. Your attitude change. Your, your heart changes. Your people you hang around with change. Things just start to change in your life because of the justification that Christ has given you at, at, well, upon you calling him Lord and looking to him for salvation. This process is called sanctification, but yet there's more. There's another aspect of this aspect called glorification. 
in which you will be in the presence of God throughout all eternity, and you will not be, you'll be away from the presence of sin itself from now on, from, from eternity on. What Paul is getting us to see and what he's trying to encourage us to understand is that we have an all-inclusive and overarching God who takes care of all of our needs. He, he, he takes us from the penalty of sin. He, he takes us from, uh, he helps us overcome the power and presence of sin of our life. And then he's, he's so good that even throughout all eternity, he, he, he saves us from that actual presence of sin. He is an all-inclusive God in this way. I don't know if you've ever had something done for you like this, but I, I have. This actually happened in the great city of Louisville to speak to the great people here in this text. When my wife and I, we, this is our second time coming back to Louisville. We lived here in 2006 to 2010, and we, our daughter was born here, Naomi. So although she wasn't born here, I always tell her you're a Kentucky girl at heart because you were born here. Um, and she, she loved here. She grew up from age zero to, to four. We left when she was four years old. There was one scary moment when we took her to the church, and on the way to church, our daughter started to have, um, I don't know what happened with her, but she ended up becoming um, non-responsive, and she started to kind of heave, and it was a very hot day, and we didn't know what to do. So we did what first parents always do. <laughs> when you're a first child, you panic, and you hit the gas, and you go to the hospital. We did that. We went to the ER as fast as we could, praying, asking God's grace, asking him to cover us. We went to the ER. We had the doctors check her out. By the grace of God, nothing serious was going on. I think she may have just been dehydrated or something like that. But when we got home a couple of weeks later, guess what we got? We got a bill. <laughs> and being broke seminary students, we can't pay a bill. We can barely pay rent. Amen. I'm like, do you want my daughter to eat? Please don't send me a bill. But as we opened the bill up and we saw the bill, we looked at the bottom. And we noticed a note from, I don't even, I'm not going to say what hospital it was, because I don't even want to, I don't want to create any enemies of people that don't go to this hospital. But uh, whatever hospital it was, they sent this note saying, you've been randomly selected um, a part of this program to have all of your bills paid and have everything covered because of a gracious donation from someone. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this before, but this is exactly what Paul is helping us to say. He's saying, listen, the bill has come to your house. You have no way to pay it. There's no way you're going to pay this bill, but yet you can still look and see it's paid in full. This is the all-encompassing way in which God saves us. He justifies us. He sanctifies us, and he glorifies us, and he's saying, I got your back in all aspects of life. I got you covered. You don't have to worry about it. I know it looks ugly. I know it's not pretty. I know change is hard, but as I grow you and as I change you, you will become and you will embody the characteristics and you will um, look more and more like my son because he says in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. Not only does the gospel save us, not only does it establish us and keeps us, but look with verse 2 at the end. The gospel also exposes us. He says this. He says, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. This aspect of believing in vain has to do with the shallow, non-saving faith. And what Paul is saying here is that if our practical lives are not reflecting the truth of the gospel, which we accepted, then we have believed in vain. 
That is, with no practical result. Paul is exhorting the, 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 the Christians here at Corinth to apply their orthodoxy, that is their right doctrine, um, to, the, to arrive at a right orthopraxy, which is a right doing. Right living conformed to right belief. And this is what Paul is doing. He's helping them to see and understand that, listen, some of you are saved. Some of you are not. Some of you are not. Some of you are believing with a shallow faith, a non-saving faith. And this is true of the church today. This is true of the church today. And again, if that is you, if that is you and you say, yes, I, I have not really tasted. I talk about Jesus. I'm around Jesus people. I, I hear about Jesus things, but I myself have not tasted of the goodness of Jesus. Then today is your day. Today is your day to, to acknowledge that before God and to repent of your sins and look, look anew to the cross of Calvary and to see that the same scars and the same empty tomb are still there for you even today by the grace of God. You see, some believe only as the demons believe. They were convinced that the gospel was true, but they had no love of God, Christ, or righteousness. And to contrast this, what Paul is saying is that, yes, there are some who believe in vain, but there are many more who hold fast to the gospel and make their establishment upon it. I love what he says here in verses 3 and 4. He not only says that the gospel establishes us, it keeps us, it saves us, it exposes us, but here he says the gospel is according to the scriptures. Look with me in verses 3 through 4 really quick. He says, For I pass on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. After Paul brings up, as a good prosecutor does, he brings up the witness of the church. He now brings up the witness of the scriptures. And notice what he says here. He says that Christ died. You see, the fact that Christ died has always been undeniable. There's no one, there's no historian that can deny that Christ actually has died. It really takes no faith to believe this irrefutable fact of history. But notice the second part. He says that not only did Christ die, but Christ died for our sins. This is a matter of faith, not directly evident in the, uh, the events of, of Christ's death and burial and resurrection, but it reminds us both of our need for Jesus' atoning work and that only God's Son, Jesus, enduring divine judgment in our place could redeem us. That Christ not only died, but he died for a purpose. He died with an agenda. He died with a mission, and that was for our sins, according to the Scriptures. I love how Paul puts that there. Because Paul here in this, in this passage is reminding us that the Bible has never been wrong one day. There's 1,000 239 prophecies in the Old Testament. There's about 578 prophecies in the New Testament. Uh, that totals about 1,817 total prophecies in 8,352 verses. And the Bible has not been wrong about one prophecy to this day. The Bible is trustworthy. It is God's word to us of, of promise and his word of fulfillment. Christ's work fulfills God's saving purposes. It implies that all of Scripture points us ultimately to the grace of God in Christ. Every aspect of it. He died, he was buried, 
according to the scriptures. How do you know, James, he died and he's buried? I know because of the scriptures. Just singing this song last night with my son, the little songs, um, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me, we, 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 this is good, this is good. If you ain't singing that song with your kids, please start singing it. Because what you're teaching them is, is part of this truth of this word. That, that Christ died according to the scriptures. Not according to hearsay. Not according to a myth or what I heard. It, he died according to scripture. The word of God. The inerrant word of God. The powerful word of God. Psalm 33 says this. He says about the word. He says he spoke in it and it came into existence. He commanded and it stood fast. The word of God is alive and active. It's stronger than any two-edged sword. God's word works. And that's how we know that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is not just a caveat he's trying to put on this. He's trying to help us understand the magnitude and the guarantee that you have and the promise that he's given through the death of his son. That this is not just something that kind of happened to Jesus. This happened because God has caused it to happen and it happened according to the faithful promises that God has kept from the beginning of time until now. He died according to the scriptures. And I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. It gives me hope not only in God who will send his son to the cross to die for me, but it gives me hope to know that the scriptures that I read, the Bible studies that I go to, the word of God that I allow to come into my heart matters, and it's powerful. He died according to the scriptures. The Bible continues. says he was buried and he was raised. This is the essence of the gospel. Burial confirms that he really died, that it wasn't just a fake death. He actually died. He was put in a borrowed tomb. His appearance, the fact that he was raised, is to eyewitness. It confirms that his resurrection was really true. We're not building a, 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 this, this upon our, our, our hearsay or myth. These are actual true fact, historical facts that we can look to from the name and person of Jesus. Look with me in about the resurrection of Jesus in verses 5 through 7. He says this, Paul says this, And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one born at a wrong time, he also appeared to me. Think about this question this week. Somebody asked me that this question. Said, "What's the best way to prove your resurrection? What's the best way to prove your resurrection?" And the simple answer is, an obvious answer is to simply show up. If you really rose, if you really rose from the dead, I mean, you 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 shouldn't be the only one. Well, if you're the only one testifying about it, that, that's the problem in itself. But if you really rose from the dead, you need to show up. You, you need to show me that you've really done what you said you're going to do. And Paul is affirming to us and helping us understand that Jesus not just appeared to two people, he appeared to many people, ate with them, walked with them, dined with them, allowed them to touch them, touch him. He enter, entertained their questions. It reminds us, it reminds us that it doesn't take faith to believe Jesus died but to believe in the miraculous bodily resurrection of Jesus, oh, that takes great faith. 
This is why Jesus appeared report, um, repeatedly, not only to his close friends, but also to doubters. I love the fact. I mean, if I was Jesus, to be honest with you, I wouldn't. <laughs> I would play some pranks, for real. I would have I I visited Pontius Pilate. I would have went to the 5,000 that said I really didn't feed them. I would have played some tricks, but Jesus is better than me, amen? Notice who Jesus goes to. He goes to those who doubted him. He goes to Peter who denied him. He goes to his disciples who deserted him. He goes to the 500 who abandoned him at the cross. He goes to people that don't deserve his appearance. He goes to people that don't deserve, that he has to prove to them or even show them that he resurrected. He goes to the undeserving and to those who don't deserve in order to provide grace. I love Jesus in this way, that in the resurrection of Jesus, and in what God has given us in his resurrection and in his own resurrection, he doesn't use that for selfish gain. But he goes to the very doubters. He goes to the very naysayers. He goes to the very ones who betrayed him and abandoned him and doubted him. His own brother James doubted him, yet he still appeared to him. This is what Christ has done. And if Christ is willing to appear to them in their doubting, he's also willing and able to appear to you in your doubting. You don't have to come to Jesus with knowing everything. But one thing you need to know is that he died and that he rose and that he's coming again. The rest of it, we can work on. We can, we can grow from. But this is the basis. This is what justification requires. is knowing that Jesus died as a holy son of God. Died an innocent man. Did nothing wrong. The most egregious crime in his history was against Jesus himself was murdered by the very people he created, put on a tree that he spoke into existence, put in a borrowed tomb because nobody wanted to give him a place to lay his head after he died. But yet again, our God vindicates those who stand by him and who walk in faithful, uh, who walk in faithful obedience to him. Amen? Because on the third day, as you know the story, go, he, he rose with all power in his hand. And because he rose, there's no situation that you can bring to Jesus that, that, that can remain dead before a resurrected king. Our, our God is didn't resurrect just for himself. He resurrected so that you can be resurrected. Out of your deadness and out of your solitude and out of your loneliness, he resurrected to resurrect you. It's the beauty of what we celebrate today. It's not just a remembrance. Of just what Jesus did, yes, but it's also a remembrance of what Jesus is doing even right now. That I'm not the same James I was 17 or 18 years ago. I'm not the same James I was last week or even yesterday. Because I'm continually being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. Is it, a, is it an easy process? No. Is it a beautiful process? No, it's not. It's quite ugly sometimes. But God himself will never give up on me because he's made a promise he made a promise, and the promise that he gave to me is not just for me, it's also for you, that he will keep you, he will sustain you, and he will grow you into the image of his son through the power of the cross and through the beauty and through the, the, the affirming um, aspects of the scriptures. Look with me lastly, verses 8 through 11. It says, last of all, as to one born at a wrong time, he also appeared to me, this is Paul, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, not yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. As I end our time today, I love how Paul goes from this aspect of looking at the church. He looks at the scriptures, he looks at the eyewitnesses, but then he goes to his own personal testimony. And Paul gives us a great example for us to follow. And this is one of the reasons why I chose this passage to share with you, because there are, there are examples that Paul gives us. He gives us a model in which we as a church need to listen to and need to follow. Notice with me in verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul's example for us here is that he exhibited no pride. Paul, pride, Paul had a right to be prideful, but he exhibited no pride. And like Paul, all of us who have believed in Christ have been plucked from our rebellion. We've been plucked from our sin. We've been plucked from our wayward paths to, to be reconciled to God. We may not have persecuted the church of God, but we all have denied the saving power of his death and the reality of his victorious resurrection in our own, in our own personal ways. Notice what Paul openly admits. He admits his unworthiness. He says, I am unworthy I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. He, he refused to even compete with his peers. He, he recognized his own weakness. See, Paul reflected on the sinful lifestyle or the state of rebellion from which God saved him, and he thereby banished any pride or spirit of entitlement from his thinking. Only the person and work of Jesus can save the undeserving sinner. This is only can be a work of, of God. This is going to only be a work that God can do. And as we stand on this historical day at coming together as a merged church, I'm going to tell you, we are up for an almost impossible task. We're calling dead people to come alive. And you can't call dead people to come alive because I can't call dead people to come alive. But there is one who can. There is a God who can call dead things into living things. There's a God who can call emptiness, look into emptiness and create everything. And that's the God we trust. And that's the God we look to in this season of life going forward as a church. It's a good reminder for us not to have an inflated view of our own significance. It's a good reminder to not be so concerned to be noticed and commended and awarded and recognized for your own work, even within this very church. To be so consumed about all that you do, all that you can bring. We come together as a broken people within a broken context to, to exalt a broken Savior, to allow people to know that healing and re redemption can only occur in him. This is the beauty. This is the majesty. This is the beauty of the gospel. Paul had a genuine appreciation of grace. Look with me in verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul attributed everything valuable in his life to God's grace. He says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul attributed his calling and his ministry to the unmerited grace of God. Does your, does your life reflect these words? Do you recognize that without him, you truly can do nothing? 
Do you attribute your success to his grace? Or do you attribute your success to your merit? Let us be a church. Let us be a church that attributes our success only to the grace of God. Let us be a church that mimics Paul in saying this. By the grace of God, we are who we are. By the grace of God, we've come together and we stay together. By the grace of God, for the glory of God in, in South Louisville and beyond. And thankful response to his calling, Paul determined to put the grace of God to work, not to earn or secure salvation, but to show his love towards the one who had rescued him. We have a great opportunity at this church to demonstrate a, 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 heart, a heart of gratitude to the God who created us and who sustains us in faithful service to him in this community. Lastly and not least, Paul expressed a humble omission of his own accomplishments. Look with me at verse 10 um, at the, here at the end. He says this, By the grace of God that was with me, he says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul didn't deny the fact that he accomplished much for the Lord, and neither should you. I'm not asking you to not let me know how great you are and how gifted you are. But here's what I am asking you to do. Um, he, his, his record um, was open for all. Paul's record was open to all, yet he approached this fact with genuine humility. It's a good reminder for us this day as we close that true humility is not convincing yourself that you are worthless, but true humility is recognizing God's work in you. It is having God's perspective on who you are and acknowledging his grace in developing your abilities. This is what true humility is. It's not about what you can do, what you can bring. It's not talking about how deplorable you are, how worthless you are. Actually, that's false humility. False humility is just the opposite. It's saying it pushes yourself down so that others can exalt you. It's lowering yourself purposefully, making yourself feel low so that others can feel sorry for you to exalt you. This is not what God has called us to. He's called us to not convincing ourselves that you're worthless, but recognizing God's work in you. I am who I am. Not a perfect man, not a perfect pastor, but by the grace of God, I will grow in the image of Christ. And as you see me, you get the front, you get front row opportunity to see me grow in that. Not only that, I get a front row seat to see you grow in that. By the grace of God and for the glory of God. Let us be a church this time next year, when we come to Easter, that we look more and more like Jesus, that we love a little bit more deeper, that we have greater unity, that we preach the gospel even more clearer, that we have a consciousness that helps us to see that in God we have everything, and may our dependency grow upon him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for this day. We, we praise you for who you are and what you're doing. We thank you for the work that you have established and you have started. Father, we look to you as the author and finisher of our faith, which you have began in our hearts and minds. Would you be faithful to complete it um, in Christ? In his name we pray. Amen.